Hello and welcome. Today we're continuing our seven-week series, The Book That Changed the World. A 10,000-foot overview of the entire Bible. And if you're just joining us, this will be part six of this series, where each week we have been giving a high-level summary of one of the key sections of Scripture. In the last five weeks, we've covered the beginnings, the history books, the wisdom books, the prophets, and last week, the Gospels. I want to say a big welcome to you if you're here for the first time or if you're joining with us online. It's fantastic you're able to connect with us here as our church community at the C3 Church. Thank you so much for being with us. I also need to say that we've based much of the material for this series on teaching from James Emery White, who's an author and pastor of Mecklenburg Church in the United States, and their series, Through the Bible in Seven Weeks. Now, before we begin, I need to set a bit of context for today's message. See, in each of these weeks, we've been covering a lot of ground. So some of our team have had to cover 12, uh, someone had to cover 17 books at a time. And I also today have the privilege, but also the pressure, of covering 22 books. So, in the next 30 or so minutes, we're going to be looking at a section of the Bible referred to as the letters, which is basically everything between the Gospels and Revelation. And so if you're following along, we'll be starting with a book called Acts and ending with a book called Jude. And when we get done here today, in this series, we'll have covered 65 of the 66 books in the entire Bible, leaving next week's Lucky Preacher with just one book. <laughs> it's, it's hard not to feel slightly hard done by when I came to this realization, and it's the first time I've ever felt what I can only call preach envy. But we're actually going to be covering 80% of the New Testament books today, which make up around 50% of all New Testament content. Needless to say, this is going to be a bit of a whirlwind tour. But as we kick things off, I want to remind us of the intention and purpose of this series, which is to give us a better intuition about how the whole book fits together. We're just trying to signpost the structure and headline the contents as we go through and hopefully leave here both informed but also inspired for us to go and dig deeper ourselves after today. You can think of today a bit like a tasting menu, where we sample from a broad section of scripture and hopefully leave with an increased appetite for God's word. And to help you with that, we've actually repurposed this week's event on the YouVersion Bible app. If, if you choose to go there, you won't find something you can follow along with. We won't be able to go into that level of detail. Instead, we've decided to go through each book and give you a bit of a, an overview of its core message, um, its structure, uh, and some key verses for each of those. And so I, I want to encourage you to maybe use that as a resource in your C3 groups or maybe in your personal study after today. So let's get to it. I'm not going to lie to you. Today might feel a little bit like a classroom. So if you, like me, are one of those people that suffers with that recurring nightmare, you know, the one where you suddenly find yourself back in school, I am sorry. At least today, you remember to wear your trousers. Some of you, I saw some people actually look down and check, which is fantastic. So let's begin. Class in session. So, with a bit of context, what are these letters? Well, 
they are letters. They are written by someone, for someone else, or for a group of people. And in today's digital age, it's often easy for us to overlook just how costly these would have been to write and to deliver. These people didn't have WhatsApp back then. Each letter would have been handwritten at great risk in the face of persecution, and then would have been sent by a messenger and hand-delivered at great cost over a huge distance. Many of these letters were intended for the various early churches around the world, and we'll look at some of those today. Most carry the name of the person that they were written to. So, for example, Philippians is the name of the letter written for the early church in the city of Philippi. In the same way, 1 and 2 Thessalonians are the first and second letters sent to the church in Thessalonica. And while we might typically associate the written letter with private or personal communication, these letters were intended for a group. And the custom was when they received these letters to read the entire contents aloud to the entire congregation. So that's a bit of context on the letters, but who was writing these letters and why were they considered so important to include in the Bible that we now have? Well, to answer that, we need to look at what Jesus said himself in the book of John. He said, very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. These letters were all written by the apostles. And the word apostle literally translates to one who has been sent. In other words, these are the people who were sent by Jesus to preach and to teach the gospel. And they were given authority to speak in his name. So by definition, these apostles, they weren't self-appointed. Each of them had received a personal commission from Jesus himself. They had all physically spent time with Jesus. Even Paul, who was apostled after Jesus' resurrection, was commissioned with the words, I apostle you. And Jesus told them that they would be supernaturally guided into all truth. In other words, the teaching of the apostles was God-inspired through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why these letters find their place in the Bible. Because the New Testament is comprised of content written by the apostles based on their commission and inspiration from Jesus. It's also why in Acts we read that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So with the remaining time we have, I want us to look at the purpose and maybe some of the headlines of the following books. Acts, Romans... 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1 and 2 Peter, 1, 2 and 3 John, and finally we're going to end with Jude. Are you feeling ready? So let's begin with the book of Acts, or to give it its fuller title, the Acts of the Apostles. This is the story of what happened immediately after Jesus left the earth, and it records for us the beginnings of of the early church. Now, all of the New Testament gives us insight into the early church, but Acts really tells us the story, the story of the apostles and the spreading of the message of Jesus. That's jam-packed with saints and sinners, misery, miracles, imprisonment, and breakthrough, and through it all, we see the power of the Holy Spirit at work. Now, 
In terms of format, it could be argued Acts is more of a history book than a letter. But it was written by someone for someone else. It was written by the Apostle Luke to a man named Theophilus. And this is the same Luke, the physician and historian, who wrote the Gospel of Luke that we looked at last week. This then is his sequel. And he picks up right where he left off in the opening verses in Acts 1. He says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So this is the Acts of the Apostles, yes, but it's also the Acts of the Holy Spirit, the Acts of the early church, and most crucially, the Acts of Jesus. You see, the story of Jesus isn't really complete until you've read the book of Acts, as it includes additional words from Jesus, interactions with Jesus, teachings by Jesus, and appearances of Jesus. And it starts with those 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. In other words, the time after he was raised from the dead until he returned to heaven. And after that, well, it's a mile a minute. We have the day of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We have Peter and John performing miracles and preaching in Jerusalem, the persecution of the apostles and the death of the martyr Stephen. We have the persecution of Christians by Paul, but then his later conversion and appointment of, as an apostle. And after that, we're continued ministry of the apostles as the church spread through Africa, Europe, and Asia. But here's the key takeaway. The conclusion of the book of Acts is not the conclusion of the work of Jesus. It's just the beginning. He is still at work today through his church and the power of the Holy Spirit using people just like you and just like me. Because the same commission he gave to the apostles in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is also for us. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This then is the book of Acts. Power through the Holy Spirit and witness to the world. Following Acts, we have the letter to the Romans. This was written by the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the letters in the New Testament. A quick aside, most people credit Paul with having written most of the New Testament. But if you instead look at the volume of writing, rather than the number of letters, then we actually owe this credit to the Apostle Luke, and by quite some margin. But Paul's letter, all saying that, to the Romans, is arguably one of his greatest works, which is both rich in theology and deep in application. And it's a book of two halves. In the first half, we see he covers the core of the Christian message, that we are justified by faith alone and not by works. And if you're wondering what that means, well, that's just Christian speak for saying all of our wrongdoing and our, our right standing with God is all done not by anything we could do, but by the person of Jesus and by his death on the cross. And the second half is, is really an encouragement and it's instruction on what our response should be in light of this amazing truth. And sandwiched in the middle 
is some of the most raw and authentic words that show that in spite of all this, we are all still human, even the great Apostle Paul. So let's take a few moments to see how all this plays out through this letter by dipping in at some key points. If you're following along, we'll start in Romans 1, where Paul kicks things off with this famous and powerful proclamation. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. He then goes on to explain in chapter 3 how this really is for everyone. In verse 22, he says, This righteousness is given through faith to Christ, in Christ Jesus to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, no one can make it on their own. None of us. It doesn't matter whether you're educated or not, whether you're loaded or broke. It transcends, enger, it transcends age, gender, race, politics, everything in your life. We are all in this mess together. But just as the problem is universal, so too is the promise. Because in verse 24 he says, And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And after this, we see he clarifies our new standing with God in chapter 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. He then takes some time to explain what grace is. And in chapter 6, he crucially comes back and explains what grace is not. He says, what should we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And it's here in chapter 7 we see Paul offer these words of comfort. The raw reality of the Christian faith journey where he writes, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. We all face an ongoing struggle between who we were without Jesus and who we are becoming with Jesus. But that's okay. Because as Paul goes on to write in what is probably the most quoted passage in all the New Testament, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And that's our promise. And finally, after a bit more practical application, he closes with these words of encouragement in chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. 
Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And that is the book of Romans. For many people, their favorite book, and with good reason. We're going to start picking up the pace in a little bit soon, but only after we spend some time on the next two books, which are two of the letters that Paul sent to the church in Corinth. We call them First and Second Corinthians. But if you read the first of these letters closely, you'll see Paul actually references a previous letter. Presumably this is now lost, which I suppose really makes these Second and Third Corinthians. But with that aside, in these letters, you will find some very direct teaching, much of which was meant as correction for the Corinthian church. He speaks to all sorts of problems, from party divisions in the church, worldly wisdom, immorality, marriage, celibacy, and divorce, idols and eating and drinking, church disorders and the appropriate use of spiritual gifts, the importance of love, prophecy, and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, it's worth taking some time to understand the context of some of the teaching in Corinthians. You see, there's a reason Paul spent so much of his time there and had to write multiple letters. And that's because this church was off the rails and was in some need of some very clear corrective action. And just to paint a picture for you of what was going on, some people were divided into camps based on which teachers they liked to listen to or which leaders they liked to follow. One church member was having an affair with his stepmother, and rather than confront him, many of the church boasted of his freedom in Christ to do just that. Some were engaging in relations with pagan temple prostitutes. Others had gone to the other extreme and given on sex entirely, given up on sex entirely, even with their spouse. Others were suing each other in the court. The communion had become a drunken party. There were fights over the roles of men and women in the church. There was some misunderstanding about the use of the spiritual gift of tongues in a worship context. And if all that wasn't enough, some had even stopped believing in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, no church is perfect. (laughs) This church was a mess. And 1 and 2 Corinthians were intended by Paul to try and clean things up a little bit while he couldn't visit them in person. Now, you might be wondering... How does one church get so off course? Well, in order to understand this, we need to appreciate their unique culture and geographical context. On the screen, you'll see an image of mainland Greece. If you take a look at this, you'll see that it's really made up of two chunks of land. One in the north and one in the south. And they're connected by this thin strip of land, separated mostly by a gulf of water. But this thin strip of land that connects them And you sort of see the southern half sort of dangles from the northern half. It's just 6.4 kilometers wide. If it wasn't for this thin strip of land, you would be able to sail right through the middle of northern and southern mainland Greece. And as it turns out, they did just that. Ships sailing east from Rome would sail through the gulf, dock and unload at this stretch of land, and have their ship dragged on rollers by slaves to the eastern port. This would save around two weeks of sailing around the southern part of mainland Greece. That gulf is the Gulf of Corinth, and that dock is at the city of Corinth. 
It was such a common trade route that if we zoom in a little bit, we'll see that 1,800 years later, they would one day put a canal in between this strip of land that actually separates the two bits of land. So this was a sailor's stop-off, a hotspot for you-know-what. While the ship was being dragged by slaves, the sailors would go into the city of Corinth and they'd do what sailors have always done, enjoy themselves. But this was on a whole nother level. Some historians believe that the term Sin City might actually have derived from Corinth. And there was a term called the Corinthian girl, which became a euphemism used more widely for any morally loose woman. This was a mishmash of pagan religions and mystical practices, but this is important we understand because it helps us separate out the specifics that Paul was addressing culturally from the principles that apply universally. Because much of what he was writing, particularly concerning women, was because of the large presence of prostitutes in Corinth. Now these prostitutes braided their hair a distinctive way, and when they spoke in public in certain settings, it identified them as a temple prostitute. That's why he instructs the women of the Corinthian church not to do these things in a church context, so as not to be misidentified as just another temple prostitution ring. So I want to encourage you, if you go and take a closer look at the teaching Corinthians, be sure to understand the principles and separate them from the cultural and historical context of the city of Corinth. So we will pick up the pace now and we'll turn our attention to Galatians, which is Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. Like Romans, this book is rich in theology and like many of Paul's letters, it had a specific purpose and point to get across. In this instance, Paul was seeking to correct some teaching by those known as the Judaizers. These were Jewish Christians who were teaching that in order to be righteous before God, you needed to keep all of the Old Testament practices and customs, including circumcision. Paul seeks to overturn this doctrine of salvation by works by reiterating that we are saved by faith alone, by the grace of God. And while circumcision by itself is fine, it should never be a test of faith or something that is necessary for God's approval, which I'm sure for many of those joining us today will be a timeless relief. Okay, well, now we come to the Ephesians. Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, which is probably one of the most important cities in all of Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. It was a commercial center with an important harbor and at the intersection of several trade routes, much like Corinth. Paul spent at least three years planting the church there, and his letter to them doesn't seem to be intended to address any specific issue. Rather, it seems to, designed to expand their thinking, to have a bigger view of the church, and of their mission, and most importantly, of God. We don't have time to explore its contents today, but it's packed with brilliant teaching, specifically on the church as the body of Christ. And it contains for us what we now know as the fivefold ministry gifts. It's definitely worth some deeper study. Following that, we have Philippians, which was written by Paul whilst imprisoned in Rome to the church in Philippi. It primarily teaches the importance of unity within the church body. The story of the church's beginnings is actually well worth a read and is found in Acts chapter 16. It tells the story of Paul, Timothy, and Silas going to Philippi after Paul had had a vision from God. And whilst there, they were confronted by a demon-possessed fortune teller. So they do what any self-respecting apostle would do. They cast the demon out. 
However, it turns out that the fortune tellers were making a lot of money from their trade, and people were angry about them losing this profitable ability. So Paul and the gang were thrown into prison. And it's there, right there in their prison cell, that in spite of being beaten and tortured, and they were praising God. And as they did this, God sent an earthquake, a miracle, and it broke them free. Now, the jailer was so freaked out by this, and knowing that he would probably be in trouble for letting the prisoners escape, he tries to take his own life. But Paul stops him and said, we're not going anywhere, and explains to him how he just witnessed a miracle, the power of God at work. And the jailer is so impacted by this experience, and how could you not be, that he and his family become the star of the early church in Philippi. After this, we have Paul's letter to the Colossians. Now, we're not going to look at this in any detail today, other than to say that the letter was to a new and quite vulnerable church, which had become exposed to some false teaching. Now, Paul never explicitly describes what the false teaching is, but from the contents of his letter, it's likely it was some combination of legalism, the worship of angels, and a diminished view of Jesus, all of which he speaks to in his letter. Next up, we have 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica. The founding of this church is also recorded for us in the book of Acts. Now, this was the largest and busiest city in all of Macedonia, which is northern Greece. And Paul spent about three weeks there. And having planted the church, Paul became very unpopular with those in power, as was often the case, and he had to flee. So Paul sent a young leader he'd been mentoring named Timothy back to Thessalonica to report back on how the church was getting on. The report contained mixed news, and this was the basis for Paul writing to them. His two letters speak of lots of things, including the end times, including the second coming of Jesus, both for his people in 1 Thessalonians and with his people in 2 Thessalonians. And we'll be covering much more of that probably next week when we turn our attention to Revelation. Which brings us nicely to 1 and 2 Timothy. I told you we'd be going fast. I hope you're still keeping up. Now, this is the same Timothy we mentioned just one moment ago. Now, in order to understand Timothy, I'd like for a moment for you to imagine that you are a fledgling, young tech entrepreneur. And you had the chance to overhear, say, Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or some other entrepreneur, some great entrepreneur of our time, mentoring or giving some advice to an aspiring startup owner or grooming one of their reports for high-impact leadership? Would you want to hang around and have a little listen to what they had to say? To be a fly on the wall just for a moment? Okay, well, now imagine you're a Christ follower and you had the chance to read a letter that was written by none other than the Apostle Paul himself to the person he had hand-picked to mentor into the Christian life and into Christian leadership. That's 1 and 2 Timothy. And hopefully that's enough motivation to get stuck into these two letters after today. The next book was written by Paul to another young leader he was mentoring, a man named Titus. And along with 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus is considered to be one of the pastoral letters because they were written by Paul to two young pastors about how to care for their churches and deal with the challenges they would inevitably face in church leadership. In here, you'll find practical teaching on structuring for an orderly and functional church, as well as how to handle divisions and disorder that inevitably come to all church leaders. A very useful resource 
for pastors and leaders alike across all time. Moving on, we have what is one of the shorter letters written by Paul. And this is a very personal letter to a man named Philemon, a member of the Colossian church. Now, of course, we don't have time to go into detail today, but it showcases Christianity's radical new understandings of equality and forgiveness in a culture where slavery and punishment were the norm. We'll read a little excerpt from this letter now where Paul writes to his friend about his runaway slave, Onesimus, who had stolen from his master and instructs him as follows. I am sending him, Onesimus, back to you, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. Welcome him as you would welcome me. If he owes you anything or has done any wrong, charge it to me. This is a very moving and humbling letter. After this, we have Hebrews, which is unique in that it's the only letter for which there isn't complete agreement on the author. Scholars over the years have debated many possibilities, including Apollos, Barnabas, Paul, Luke, and Priscilla. And as the title suggests, it was written to the Hebrews, seeking to bridge the gap between Jews and Gentiles, between the Old and New Testament, law and grace, between Judaism and Christianity. And this letter is also home to the inspirational passage of Scripture known as the Hall of Faith, which documents and shows us clearly what God can do through ordinary people when they put their faith in their extraordinary God. After this, we come to the book of James, a letter that we here at C3 Church devoted five whole weeks to in a series earlier this year. Just a reminder of the scale of what we're covering today. Now, there is a little dispute about who wrote the book of James, but most agree it's likely James, the brother of Jesus. And this letter is packed full of practical, no-nonsense wisdom for the Christian life. And I say no-nonsense because this guy is blunt. Paul really knew how to pave the way for correction. So if you read his letters, he was the master of the critic sandwich. Always with a lovely introduction, full of praise. Not James. James was more of a bulldozer. He got straight to the point. And we see how he opens his letter with these uplifting words in James 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials. He continues in a similar vein with hard-hitting teaching on temptation, favoritism, the evidence of faith, and the taming of the tongue. This one is all killer, no filler. And if you're like me, and you like it when people just cut to the chase, this letter is one you're going to enjoy. So we're on the home straight now. One and two, Peter. Now these letters were written by Peter, not to Peter, and they were intended for a, a broader audience. Mainly, but not exclusively, Hebrew Christians. Now there's a lot going on in these letters, and not a whole load of structure to tie it together, but if you had to draw out one main theme from each letter, it would probably be how to handle persecution in 1 Peter, and how to deal with false teaching in 2 Peter. So we're almost there. Next we have the three letters from the Apostle John. Now this is the same John who wrote one of the four Gospels that we looked at last week. And John was called the disciple that Jesus loved because he was the closest, most intimate friend Jesus had during his time on earth. So much so that when Jesus was dying on the cross, he turned to John and asked him to look after his mother. 
he writes three letters, which were intended for various people and groups. Both 1 and 2 John were written to tackle problems in the church, mostly false teaching that had crept in. 3 John, a little bit different, uh, was written to address more of a relational issue. Not so much heresy, but internal conflict in the church. And 3 John also holds the distinction of being the shortest book in the entire Bible. And finally, we have Jude, which is also written by Jude to a general audience. Like James, Jude was also a brother of Jesus. A quick side note on these two brothers. Both of these men would have grown up with Jesus before they became followers of him. So if anyone would ever have a reason to doubt that Jesus was who he claimed he would be, he was, or if anyone knew the real Jesus, it would surely be James and Jude. And yet, they both chose to follow him, to worship him, and even die a martyr's death for him. I think this is a powerful testimony to the identity of Jesus. And what we find in Jude's letter is teaching to address a distorted view of grace. That being saved is somehow a license to do whatever we please. Such a view of grace, of course, is, is a cheapened view of grace. And many of what you, much of what you find in Jude will echo the teachings of Paul in the book of Romans. And that's it. That's the letters. That's the apostles' written legacy for the early church. And it's also for us for all time. Having only scratched the surface of these letters in the time we've had, it's made me realize just how valuable they are to us, even now. The cost and the risk and the pain required to produce and preserve these letters is truly a gift to us. And we're building on the foundation of their teaching even today. And whilst we would never seek to add to the teaching of the Bible, it does prompt us to ask the question, what legacy will we leave behind? What sacrifice will we be willing to make to reach the lost and to see the gospel change hearts and minds, to change lives and eternities? Wherever you're joining us from today, I, I just want to encourage you to join with us and pray as we draw this message to a close. Father God, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you that it is both living and active and has everything we need for life and godliness. I pray that as we're nearing the end of this series that you would increase our hunger for your word and that you would speak to us as we engage with the Bible on a whole new level. Thank you for the legacy of these letters. And I pray that we will be mindful of our legacy, written or otherwise, as we seek to invest in the lives of others and to share the message of Jesus in our world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, if you're joining us online, thank you so much for being with us here today. I'm going to hand you back to your service, Pastor Now.